Good morning. It is great to be here at Circle today. My name is John Ravichander. I'm the Senior High Program Director here at Circle, and that means I have the privilege of working with our high school students, grade 9 to 12, our junior high students, grades 6 to 8. I get to work with a phenomenal group of volunteers and, dare I say, the most incredible staff in, that any church uh, could have. I just love it here. I love the community that we have here at Circle Drive. Uh, it's something that brought us 13 years ago through those back doors. I came here with my family. I was 12 years old, just, just a wee guy. I had green braces. I just became a Ryder fan. Don't make that mistake again. Anyone young here, don't make that mistake. I came through those back doors with my family, and 13 years later, here we are. Here we are. We just never looked back. There's such an energy when you walk into a place like this. And 13 years ago, we felt that energy when we came in. We walked through those doors. We felt that there was something different here, just a greater sense of community, a greater sense of love, and, and we, we stuck. We, we just we, we couldn't leave. And if you're wondering, you know, this is my first time giving a message here on a Sunday morning. If you're wondering who the most nervous person in this room is, it is my mother. So <laughs> if you see someone that's, uh, that's sweating profusely around you, it is her. So just send a quick prayer up for her, and she'll be she'll be golden. Uh, but, but really, we just have such a great community here. Uh, so if this is your first time here, if this is your hundredth time here, thank you for being here. Thank you for making Circle a part of your weekend. Thank you for making church a part of your weekend. And for those of you that are listening online, thank you for joining us. We hope that one day you can join us here at Circle as well. Last week, Pastor Paul kicked off our series, Moral Mayhem, and wow, what a doozy. If you were here last Sunday, you'd know it's on the book of Judges, and if you know anything about the book of Judges, maybe you've read it, or you were here last week, or you listened to it online, there's some freaky stuff that goes on in there. There's some messed up stuff. And we can often look at texts like that, and we can say, well, that doesn't apply to me, and we just sort of dismiss it, and we, we, we leave it on the shelf. Well, let's leave it there. And Pastor Paul did a great job of unpacking it for us, and really the whole point of last week was, yeah, there's some messed up stuff. There's some screwed up people that do some horrible things. And the point was that our private choices ha have very public outcomes, and that was very well done. I was convicted by that, so thank you, Pastor Paul, for that. I'm going to give you a quick look ahead to next Sunday. If you're here next Sunday, we're going to be visiting our friend Samson. And if you know anything about Samson, you know that he gets involved in some, how would you say, some extracurricular activities, maybe, would be a good way to put it. Maybe a light way of putting it. He gets in involved in some kind of spooky, sexy stuff. Just putting it lightly. So Pastor Paul is going to lead us through that next week, and it's going to be great, and thank goodness, because he's going to solve it all. He's going to solve it all for us. Just a quick note on that, if you're bringing kids to church next week, can I advise you to make use of our kids' programming? We have amazing kids' programming, phenomenal volunteers, amazing staff. They have fun on Sundays here at church. And if you're bringing a teenager to church next Sunday, you can just bring them right on up to the front row. We've got space for them. It'll be great. Yeah, you get it now, right? Yeah. Uh, before we get into today's message, as a quick reminder for you, you can catch up with all of our previous messages in our current series on our website, cdac.ca slash messages. Or you can also pull out your mobile device. You can go to your favorite app store and just type in CircleYXE. You can find our CircleYXE app. You can listen to all our current series, our previous series. You can take notes right on your phone. Save them all right to your device so that you don't have this heaping pile of notes when you get home. Right, Mom? Okay, we've, we've been working on that. We've been working on that. 
So really, what we've been looking at so far in this series is the underbelly of the North American dream. Pastor Paul introduced that to us last week. And it's really a reflection of our society. You do you. Those are the words that Pastor Paul used to describe that dream. You do you. I want to do what I want, when I want, with whomever I want. But here's the thing. Because we are a civilized society, right? We're not barbaric. We're not, we're not barbarians. We put a little asterisk beside that, the end of that sentence. And we say, hey, you, you know what, man? You can do you. You do what you want, when you want, with whomever you want. But as long as you don't hurt anybody. As long as you don't hurt anybody. But like we discovered last week, what ultimately happens when we say, I want to do what I want, when I want, with whomever I want, as long as I don't hurt anybody, well, what happens? Ultimately, we hurt somebody. And that someone could be your friends, could be your family, it could be ourselves, right? We're somebody, we're somebody. And that, and eventually, you'll hurt the people that come after you as well. You hurt the people that are with you, but you'll eventually hurt the people that come after you. And that's what's been driving our conversation in the series, and it comes from the book of Judges. And Pastor Paul gave us a great overview of Judges last week, which is really an ancient piece of Israeli history that takes place before they get to the promised land. So if you're wondering where we are in that timeline, it's before the Israelites get to the promised land. So Moses, Moses gets the Israelites out of Egypt, out from slavery and out from oppression. And before Moses dies, he gives Joshua his blessing to lead. And God guided Joshua and the people of Israel to a time of prosperity. Now, while Joshua was alive and well, man, and he led the Israelites, man, things were good. Things were real good. See, Joshua led the Israelites and God was on their side for years and years and years until, well, Joshua eventually expired. Fancy word for saying he died, okay? And what follows this is a period of nearly 300 years where the Israelites were given these judges that were appointed by God to help administer the law, the Mosaic law, or the the law of Moses, as you might know. But what do you know? The whole thing, the whole thing was a disaster. It was a cycle over and over and over again of the same kind of business worsening each time. It was a dissension into chaos. They say, hey, we're never going to do that again. We're we're never going to do that again. Then what happens? They disobey God. And then things become a disaster, and and then look, God delivers them. It's this whole cycle of rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. And the The most fascinating thing about the book of Judges, to me, is the way that it ends. I know Pastor Paul mentioned this last week, but it just blows my mind every time I read through it. Take a look at this final statement. You can follow up along the screen. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. There was no king. So everyone just kind of made it up as they went along. They'd say, hey, You know what? I want to do what I want, when I want, with whomever I want. But, and you think you know what comes next, because I said it earlier, right? As long as you don't hurt anybody. But the thing is, they weren't as civilized as us, so they didn't care about hurting anybody. But that's besides the point. But the way the judges ends is absolutely tragic. Absolutely tragic. There is no hero. No one is redeemed. Nothing good comes out of it. It just ends. Worst movie ever written. 
Now, it's kind of funny, looking at this progression from the beginning of Judges contrasted with the end. Not that there's anything funny about the horrific stuff that happens in this book, but the beginning of Judges is kind of like the last day of church camp, okay? For y'all that are familiar with church camp, you'll understand. For those of you that aren't, just bear with us for a moment. But the beginning of church camp is, you know, you're away for a few days or you're away for, for a week, and the last day of church camp, it has something in common. They all have something in common. What, is, what does everyone do on the last day of church camp? They get emotional. They get emotional. You know, they, they might start crying. They've been together for a week. They're, they're building relationships. They're having a great time. They're getting inspired. They want to change. You know, the last day of camp, you've got people crying everywhere. You don't know why they're crying soon. You're crying, and you don't even know why you're crying now. Anyway, not that any of that's a bad thing. Crying's a great thing. But what is almost always the case as well is that everyone makes a big commitment. Remember that? You might remember that. People go this. They're like, I'm going to go home, and you know what? I'm going to break up with him. I'm going to go and break up with her. They're going to patch things up with their parents, right? They're going to pretty much quit doing everything. They're going to smoke anything anymore. They're not going to drink anymore. They're going to get rid of their toxic group of friends. They won't sneak out at night anymore. I see some convicted faces. Everything. They're going to pretty much quit their whole life, right? And that's the book of Judges and kind of the last end of Joshua as well in the beginning, okay? Remember, Joshua, Joshua is about to expire. And so he, ga- he gathers the Israelites and he's about to send them on their way. Like, like this is it. Joshua's about to die. So Joshua's ready to give them this big speech. And this is what he says. He said, you can follow up along the screen. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. So really, this is code for like, listen, go break up with your boyfriend, go break up with your girlfriend, go get rid of those cigarettes, go get rid of that, that secret stash that you have, get rid of all the things in your life that are polluting your life. So Joshua, he gives them this big speech, and then the people of the nation of Israel, they respond, and this is what they say, it's humorous. Far be it from us to forsake the Lord and serve other gods. And the thing, you might be chuckling in your head because you know the whole story and you know what happens. And if you're brand new to this, you're brand new to this whole Christian thing and you don't know the story, you can probably take a guess at what happens. They're saying, You know what, Joshua, don't you worry about a thing because when you're gone, we're going to remain faithful to God. And they continue by saying this, it was the Lord God himself who brought us and our parents up and out of Egypt from that land of slavery. So they're saying, hey, we we don't want to go back to living a life of slavery because they remember Pharaoh and they remember the hardships that they had to endure. So so they proclaimed that they remembered how God performed those great signs before their very eyes. And then they later say this. They say, we too will serve the Lord because he is our God. So listen, Joshua, you, you just go on ahead. You go get some rest. We'll be just fine. We made a covenant with God. He is our king. We have the law. You don't have to worry about us. We'll be just fine. We'll never go back there. But right after that, Joshua says, and I'm paraphrasing here, he says, he says, look, I, I bet that you will. 
I, I, I bet that you will go back. And they say, oh, no, 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 we're not. We're not going to do that. And, and Joshua says, no, look, I, I'm telling you, you think you're not going to ba go back. You think that this is all going to be so easy. You think that you've learned your lesson. But the people still say to Joshua, no, we, we will serve the Lord. Don't worry about it. We will serve him. So Joshua's just like, he's done. He's like, okay, I've warned y'all. So then Joshua expired. And the thing is, the incredible thing is, that, like the flowers over his tomb hadn't even dried when what? Lo and behold, and the scriptures tell us this, and then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals. Like they had barely even changed clothes from Joshua's funeral, and here they are looking to do everything Joshua told them and God told them not to do. Everything. They got home from camp and went right back to the things they had done before they got to camp. So Israel, after turning their back on God, we'll see they were eventually captured by these raiders from the nations around them. You see, Israel, they tried to fight back, uh, but, but whenever Israel went to fight out, the hand of the Lord was against them. And just as God had sworn to them, and they were in a great, great distress. So you think that God would just be done with these folks, right? Like they just aren't getting it. But what do you know? God sees how distressed they are, and he does something to give the nation of Israel another chance. And here's the thing. God could have easily, easily helped Israel defeat these raiders from the nations around them. But because Israel turned their back on him, you know, God no longer drove those nations away. Instead, God raises up these judges to save Israel from the hands of the raiders. At the same time, he uses it as a test to see if Israel would keep the way of the Lord just as their ancestors had. Now, there were 12 judges in total during this time, 12. And this is over the span of about 300 years. And, and the book of Judges really highlights about six of them. So we're, we're going to mention a five this morning, and then Samson, Samson's going to be the sixth, and he got up to so much that we had to give him his own Sunday, okay? Now, after the death of Joshua, you had these three judges in chapters two and three, if you're wondering where we are, in chapters two and three. Their names, Othniel, Ahud, and Deborah. They were pretty good. They were pretty good. And they each helped Israel out of oppression from the nations around them. You see, Othniel, he won a battle. Ahud killed this oppressive king. He went up to him, pulled a dagger out of his thigh, poked him in the belly, then ran away. Okay? Deborah, with her incredible insight, extraordinary insight, gave the military a strategy to help them win. And in fact, she, she was so instrumental in their victory that they wrote a song about her in the next chapter. And next Sunday, you won't want to miss it. Paul has said he's going to sing it for you guys. So you have that to look forward to. Right? He's a little nervous. But we have to. We've got to do it now. We've got to do it now. Now, the next two judges, they went off the rails a little bit, like really off the rails. You see, Israel, they kept going back into their old habits. So then they cried out to God for help. Then this God, you know, God raised up this guy, and his name was Gideon. So, so God, in chapter 6, gives him the plan. He says, go down into the middle of the town and tear down the existing altar that worships Baal. And instead, build an altar, a proper altar for the Lord your God. So Gideon, he waited till nighttime. He crept down in the middle of the town, and he did what God asked him 
to do. And eventually, eventually, after some un- unhappy townspeople got over themselves, they were pretty mad that he did that, okay? But eventually, they united behind Gideon, and God willed Gideon and only 300 men to an extraordinary victory. And they had pre- peace for 40 years. Peace for 40 years. But something else happens here. You see, Gideon has a real nasty temper. And he actually ends up murdering some of his fellow Israelites for not helping him. And then things really start to devolve when Gideon, using his gold that he, that he plundered from the battle, he uses it to build an idol out of that gold. The same Gideon who listened to God and trusted him and used God's help in battle, this is the same Gideon now using an idol to worship out of that gold. And once Gideon dies, you see, the people of the nation of Israel, they begin to worship this idol. What is going on? And the cycle begins again. And this cycle continues over the span of a few more judges that God raises up. But the next one, and the final judge that we'll talk about this morning, is Jephthah. And again, Judges, in in chapters 10, verse 6, it continues the trend. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's a phrase that gets repeated like, a dozen times in this book, by the way. So God gave them into the hands of yet another nation. And for 18 years, 18 years, Israel was in great distress. So as per usual, the Israelites, they cry out to God for help. Oh, oh God, we, we have sinned. We have sinned again, Lord. We have sinned against you. We've forsaken our God and, and we've served the balls. Would you help us? But God, this time, he was like, look, This has happened over and over and over and over again, and each time I saved you. But I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to do that anymore. So here's what you can do, Israel. You can go and ask all of those other gods that you chose and ask them for help. But the Israelites, they said, oh, God, come on. Look, God, please, look. We get it. We've sinned horribly. We get it. And I love what they say next. It's like they're guilting him, right? Do whatever you think is best, God. Do whatever you think is best. But please, please, would you rescue us? So the Israelites, they got rid of their other gods, and they started serving the Lord. Now, despite what God said earlier, he looked at the misery they were in. He couldn't stand it anymore. So he decides to help them using Jephthah. But the thing is, Jephthah, he didn't really know the God that the Israelite ancestors knew. He didn't. And so much so that Jephthah pretty much thought of God as the Canaanite idols. And he makes a vow to make a sacrifice if he wins that battle. He says, look, God, if you help me win this battle, I will sacrifice to you the first person that walks out of my house when I return home. What? What kind of deal is that? And and the worst thing is God didn't even ask for that at all. It was a horrible and a foolish thing for Jephthah to do. So after being victorious in battle, Jephthah returns home, and lo and behold, prancing and dancing out of the front door of his house, who? His daughter. His daughter. A horrible, horrible thing that was completely avoidable if Jephthah just knew who God was. 
And this just shows, this just demonstrates how far away Israel had come from God and where they and their leaders didn't even know the character of their one true God anymore. Now here's the point of all of this. There was a point to all of this, I think. And it's something that we don't often see until it is too late. It's a thing that puts us into the same cycle of, look, I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it. Well, now I'm doing what I want to do when I want to do it. And then we say, yikes, I'm doing what I want to do when I want to do it, and I don't like it. And the worst part is, I can't quit. I can't quit. Just like Israel, we trade one king for another. We trade one king for another. Now, if you grew up going to church, or, or you don't go to church anymore, and you're just kind of disconnected from all of that, you might say, look, I know right from wrong. I know right from wrong. I memorized some verses as a kid. I'd never do what they did. Oh, no, you say, I'd, I'd never do that. I'd never go back. But then at some point in your life, you decided, you know what? I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm tired of being this church person. I'm tired of whatever it is. I don't know what your story is here. Or maybe you didn't make a decision, and it was this kind of gradual process. But at some point along the way, you walked away. Or maybe you didn't grow up Christian at all. Maybe you just grew up in a good home where, where you knew right from wrong. You just had sort of these basic religious or, or Canadian values. But somewhere along the way, you also decided, you know what, I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it, with whom I want to do it with. I'm going to live my own life. And I don't want anyone telling me what to do. Heck, I don't need no king. And I most definitely don't need a God, this invisible guy who doesn't, who doesn't do anything for me anyway, telling me what to do. But then one day you wake up and you realize, uh-oh, I didn't gain my freedom. In fact, I feel less free than I did before. And the reason is we just traded one king for another. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, it's not about divorce, it's about hell actually. It's a version of what hell is like. And he says this, in hell, everybody can have whatever they want by thinking of it. In hell, you can have everything you want just by thinking of it. And in hell, no one can get along. In hell, no one lives anywhere close to anyone. They got what they wanted. They got their total autonomy, and no one can get along. You see, you were created to be ruled. I know it's a tough thing to, to hear, but you were created to be ruled. And when you say no to the creator king, you simply choose a different king. You choose a little king. What are some examples of these little kings? Lust, greed, comparison, insecurity, fear. You could probably add your own to that list. And the thing is, these substitute kings are not merciful. These substitute kings do not love you. 
These substitute kings will control you. These substitute kings will take away your freedom because maximum freedom, and, and this is a lesson we all learn either the hard way or the easy way. You either trust or you learn it yourself. Maximum freedom. And this isn't just preacher talk. We all could give our own story. Maximum freedom is never found serving the little kings because maximum freedom in this life is found under the canopy of God's authority. See, remember the first time after Joshua died that Israel turned against God. Eight years. Eight years spent under oppression. And the thing is, you might be right where the Israelites were. You might be. At the end of those eight years, they did what some of you may have done. They did what some of you are ready to do. And they did what some of you need to do. They threw up their hands, and they said, Oh God, we have sinned. Oh God, we have sinned. Oh God, we were fooled. Oh God, we went for the very thing that you warned us about. Oh God, that we thought that in expressing our independence and expressing our autonomy, somehow we would gain more freedom. And oh God, we realize now that in expressing our independence and expressing our freedom, we didn't gain freedom, but rather we gave it away. We've been conquered by the very king and culture that we copied. Oh God, oh God, would you help us? And God says, yes, because you are still my people. One of the many amazing things about the Christian faith that is shown through this historical account of Israel is that God, God is a God of mercy. He is so merciful. He's not going to force you to love him. He won't do that. He will let you choose. Why? Because freedom is found under the canopy of God. He doesn't want to control you. If he did, he would have made you that way. He would have created you like that. No, God wants to love you. And he wants you to love him back. And this is something that all of those other substitute kings, you see, they have no concept of. And I get it. I get it. It's so difficult to move against the grain of our society and our culture that is so me-focused, that is so me-centered. And it's overwhelming when our culture points to all of these little kings and says, this is what you need. This is what will give you the freedom you're looking for. It's tough. But the incredible thing and the incredible opportunity that we have, all of you have here, is that we don't have to journey in this alone. You see, mentoring is such a vital part of developing a faith of our own. And it's something that we offer for you, and I can confidently say, I can confidently say that I would not be here today, I would not be alive today if it weren't for the spiritual mentoring that I took advantage of here at Circle. You see, I was in that slow, cyclical dissension into chaos. It wasn't one decision. 
It was gradual, and I found myself there. And I felt stuck. I felt stuck, and I felt too far gone, too far gone. But the thing is, through mentorship, I learned that there was something more, that there was something greater than myself. I had someone that could hold me accountable. He's here today, Pastor Wayne. He's with our kids in the back. You see, I developed a faith that was my own. That was my own. Not my parents' faith, not my grandparents' faith, not even my pastor's faith. It was a faith of my own that I could ground myself in. And that might be something that you need. Seriously want you to consider that. And if you have questions about that, if you want to know more about what this whole mentoring thing is, if you want, if you want to define it, if you, if you want, just want more information or how to get connected or how to get involved in mentorship, fill out that connection card that you have on your app in the seat pocket in front of you. Or after the service, go talk to Austin at the information desk. We would love to connect with you. We would love to journey with you. Uh, some of you guys might know this character. Well, not a character, he's a real person. Kanye West. Anybody Kanye West? Yeah? You see, Kanye West, he's kind of the perfect example of, of a rags-to-riches story. He really didn't have much, and he, he made it up through the rap game, through the music game, and he, ma he made it. And you see, Kanye, he's one of those people who could very easily do what he wanted, when he wanted, with whomever he wanted, and probably didn't care if he hurt anybody because he did hurt a lot of people. And he did do all of those things. And Kanye, he's one of those people, if you've listened to his music, if you've heard of inter his interviews, if you know anything about him, he actually calls himself God. He calls himself God. Just over a month ago, he released a gospel album. And it ruffled feathers. Everybody was like, oh, man, Kanye's doing another thing. He's just, he's just being Kanye. He's just going to fail. And I was like, yeah, he is going to fail. He is absolutely going to fail. And I know that to be true because I have failed. And so you got a guy who used to call himself God, and the album title of his gospel album is Jesus is the King. Wow. Transformation right there. And it didn't just happen like that. It took a community coming around him. It took individuals coming around him. In fact, one instrumental person was a former youth pastor that was so instrumental in the development of his current faith. Jesus is the king. Another story that's closer to home. My parents got a phone call about a month ago. A family friend was in the hospital. And they went to visit him, and, and when, they, when they came back home, they said, John, you should... You should really go and pay him a visit. He would really like that. And so I did. I said, sure. I, I went to visit him. And the thing is, he's known me and my brother since we were like this tall. We go way back. And the thing is, he doesn't believe what we believe. He doesn't believe what we believe at all. He believes in another God and in another religion. And the funny thing is, he was actually my genetics professor in university as well. So he's a smart guy. He's a logical guy. He's rational. And about a year before, he'd been talking to my dad a lot about faith and what, what this whole thing that we believe is and asking all of these questions. And long story short, at that hospital visit, after some very strange and, and really amazing discussion, I asked him, I said, what do you want from me this afternoon? What do you want from me? What do you want me to do? 
And he said, would you pray for my soul? Would you pray for my soul? I asked him to expand on that. He said, look, you hit the jackpot. You were born into this whole Christianity thing. You were born into the kingdom. You have it all. You have it made. You are in. He said, me, I've been doing the wrong thing for all of these years of my life. All of these years of my life. And I am stuck. I am too far gone. And I shared with him about that guy right up there. I shared with him about what we believe. And I said, look, I want you to experience maximum freedom. I do so badly, but I'm not going to force that on you. I'm going to wait till you are ready. And the thing is, he's going to wait till you're ready too. That's why I said, if you want to call me in a month, a year, 10 years from now, you do that and we'll do it. And he put down his sandwich, he was eating lunch, and he reached out his hand to me and he said, right now. And that afternoon, he gave his life to Christ. And he is experiencing maximum freedom because he now knows not just a king, but the king. You see, all of these people, all of us, we trade one king for another for years and years and years. And when we come to that realization, we can often think that we're too far gone, that we're just not good enough or no longer good enough. We've wanted the kingdom without the king so bad. Our culture loves the values of Christ. They just don't want anything to do with Christ. And we think, there's no way that he will want me back. But the reality is that he does. And he's waiting. And he will continue to wait. He will wait until you open that door and invite him in. He has so much more for you, so much more. You see, he doesn't want 10% of your money. He doesn't want 10% of your time. He doesn't want you to come to church once a month. He wants 100%, all of you. All of you. The incredible thing is that in just over a month, this community, this city, and, and this nation, really this whole world, will pause to celebrate the birth of the king. And we can choose, we can choose to continue the pursuit of freedom and autonomy in all of these other ways. And you might find it temporarily. Or we can choose to break the cycle. We can choose, along with the support of this community around you, to choose maximum freedom. Because we do have a king. You see, Judges ends saying that the Israelites didn't have a king. We do have a king. And he lies in the real historical, the death and the resurrection of the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, sent here to bear the weight of our sin and shame. Why? So that we could have the opportunity to experience eternal freedom. We attempt to live in a kingdom without a king. 
And as we enter into a moment of reflection with a song before communion, I want you to pause. Just you, just you in this moment. I want you to pause, and I want you to consider where you are in this journey. I want you to consider what life would look like if we lived for the king to experience the fullness of his kingdom.